We need to talk about depression today. Depression, despite being an incredibly common mental health condition, is also still extremely misunderstood. There are so many misconceptions about it, there are so many misunderstandings of what it is, and I think perhaps most important of all, there are so many misunderstandings about what it feels like. That's the biggest misconception that I'm hoping to address today. So I want to give a little bit of a disclaimer before I get going today. All of the information I'm going to discuss in this episode is for adults, as in adults who are experiencing symptoms of depression. Depression can show up differently in children or adolescents. It's expressed differently. The symptoms are different. It looks different. I know a decent amount about that as well, but I'm not as much of an expert on how depression shows up in younger people. So when we talk about the signs, the symptoms today, this is gonna be more geared towards adults and it doesn't necessarily apply perfectly to depression or mood disorders in younger people. The first thing I wanna talk about is the difference between situational depression and chronic depression. This is a limitation in the language that we use to describe symptoms or conditions in mental health. So every possible diagnosis that a person can have, every mental health condition is defined in a gigantic book called the DSM, stands for Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Illness. In the DSM is every diagnosis, every symptom, and all of the information you can imagine about it. One of the biggest reasons we still have so much misunderstanding about depression is that when people use the word depression, they're actually potentially talking about two different things. Depression is a normal human emotion that all people experience from time to time. Everybody knows what depression feels like because everybody has dealt with a situation, probably many situations in their lives that have made them feel depressed. Situations like the death of a loved one, a breakup, losing a job, failing a class, really, really difficult, stressful, sad life events that change your emotional experience for a temporary or acute period of time. That's depression, the emotion. Everybody knows depression, the emotion. When we talk about depression in the world of mental health, we're talking about a diagnosis. We're talking about a chronic mood disorder. Most of the time, we're talking about major depressive disorder, although we'll talk about the different diagnoses that can produce symptoms of depression shortly. But depression, the diagnosis, feels very similar to depression, the emotion. The biggest difference between a depressive disorder and an acute experience of depression is the cause. When you get depressed because something has happened in your life to make you depressed, that's an external cause. Something outside of yourself is creating changes in how you feel internally. When you have a mood disorder or a depressive disorder, the feelings of depression actually come from within yourself. They may be triggered by a life event or something happening outside of yourself, but they do not require an external trigger. And that is one of the things that is so frustrating about them because you can have a good life or a great life. Everything can be going fine. You can look at your life from a bird's eye view and be able to see like, this is good. I am happy with the direction this is going. I am grateful for everything I have. And you can still feel immensely depressed if you have a depressive disorder. This misunderstanding, these two similar but different situations that are described using the same word, creates a lot of 
frustration and a lot of bad advice because it isn't always clear if someone is talking about depression the feeling or depression the diagnosis. And you've got a lot of people out there who have dealt with situational depression and who have overcome situational depression. And these people, well-meaning, I assume, just a little bit ignorant, not trying to be mean, but just mental health is complicated, a little bit ignorant on the difference between the two. And so, you know, someone, someone got depressed because they lost their job, right? And then they went for a walk and got a new job and read a book, you know, did a few things to kind of get back on track, get back on the horse, improve the quality of their life. And then this person felt better because they solved the problem, did a few things to bring in some positive emotion, and now they don't feel depressed anymore. And that's great. Those are absolutely the kinds of things that you should do if you're experiencing situational depression. If a person is experiencing a chronic depression, all of those things may still help. They're not bad ideas, but they are inadequate. They are insufficient to truly help the person with what they're dealing with. And when people suggest that the cure or the solution for a mood disorder or a depressive disorder is to go for a walk and read a book and get a job, it's a little bit like offering someone with a broken arm a Tylenol. It'll help a little bit. It's not gonna solve the problem. And it gets very frustrating when people are using the same word to describe two different things. This is our fault, by the way, our fault meaning psychologists. All of our terminology, all the diagnoses that a person can have and all of the diagnostic criteria for every diagnosis, they're all described in a book called the DSM or Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Illness. We're currently on the fifth version, so it's DSM-5. It is really unfortunate now we chose to name some of our disorders or diagnoses after normal human emotions. Uh, we have the same problem with anxiety, by the way, which we'll discuss in a later episode, but that's also two different things. It creates a lot of confusion and a lot of misunderstanding. And I'm hoping that some of the information that I share with you today will help correct that. So if you're not already frustrated, prepare to be, because this next part still upsets me. We don't really know exactly why people experience chronic depression. We've actually, it's not quite right to say that. We know lots of reasons. We don't know why any one individual person experiences chronic depression. There are many causes that we've discovered and they apply to some people, but not others. Sometimes it is genetics. Sometimes it's brain activity, neurotransmitter levels. Sometimes it is brain structure, just physically your brain is built a little bit differently. Sometimes it's comorbid or, or co-occurring with another condition, whether that's another mental health condition, another medical condition. There's all kinds of reasons. And sometimes we can't find a reason. We don't always know. Feelings. If you are a person struggling with depression and you come into my office as a psychologist and ask me to articulate to you why you are depressed, most likely I will be unable to do that. And, and that drives me nuts. Like, I really wish that I could. I really want to be able to do that, but that's just not where our field is yet. I'm not trying to make excuses. I know this is very frustrating, but we are not yet at a point uh, as a field where we can definitively say, here's why this is happening to you. You know, we don't have a, a mental health version of, of an x-ray or a blood test. We have educated guesses based on observed symptoms. In other words, we watch you, we talk to you, we listen to you, we learn about your life, and then we speculate as to what we think is going on. And at this point in time, 
that's the best we can do. I know that's very frustrating, and I'm sorry. I hope that we get better in the future. So let's really break down the symptoms of a depressive episode or a period of time when you experience depression. I want you to know right away, please don't use these symptoms to diagnose yourself. Simply use them to educate yourself. And if a lot of this stuff sounds like you, that's okay to have a theory about that, okay? But don't immediately conclude, I have chronic depression, I need X, Y, and Z treatment. Take that information to a person who can help you sort through it, to a mental health or a medical professional, and then take your next steps from there. So a depressive episode is defined as experiencing at least five of the nine symptoms that I'm about to go over with you for most or all days in a period of time lasting two weeks or more. In other words, if you have a really rough like day or two every now and then, even if there isn't an obvious big external cause for that, that's still going to be considered more in line with a situational depression than a chronic depression. A chronic depression or a depressive episode is much longer lasting than a couple days. So this would be like, you know, probably at least 10 days or so in a two-week period, a minimum of two-week period. For some people, these episodes can last for months. So the core symptom of a depressive episode is simply what we call depressed mood. And this is basically just the emotional experience of depression. It can vary somewhat from one person to the next, which again, can be a little tricky for diagnoses. Some people experience depression as an intense sadness or, or heaviness or sorrow. Like it almost feels like grief. It can almost feel like that feeling you get when like someone you loved uh, has died. It can feel very similar to that, except with no related stimuli that would clearly make you feel that way. Other people experience that depressed mood as more of just an emptiness or a hollowness or a void or an absence of feeling, not even necessarily sad, just not there at all. Some people also experience the depressed mood more as like irritability, anger, frustration, resentment. So it can vary a little bit from person to person. So that's why that symptom in and of itself, we're gonna need a little bit more than that to say this is a depressive episode. The second symptom that almost everybody with depression experiences, this one's close to universal, is what's called anhedonia. Anhedonia means the loss or the lack of joy. So if you think of like, like hedonism, basically means uh, like pleasure or mindlessly seeking pleasure, right? So an means not. So anhedonia basically means like no pleasure. And when you're experiencing anhedonia, you can go out and do all the things that you normally like to do or that you normally get excited about or that normally make you feel proud or accomplished. You know, you go out with your friends, you have a good night, you work out, you go to work, you go to school, you do a good job. And normally you'd feel like that was a good day. You know, I had fun. I got stuff done. I feel good about myself. When you're in a phase of anhedonia, you go do those things and just nothing or little, little bit. Maybe you feel just a hint or a spark of that emotion. What's there? It, maybe it's there while you're doing those things, but like literally the second, you know, within seconds of the experience or the event ending, those feelings just kind of drain out of you like somebody pulled the plug. That's anhedonia. Anhedonia is a pretty specific symptom to depression. Some of these symptoms we're going to talk about, they're also symptoms of five, six, seven other diagnoses. So they are not instantly like suggestive of a depressive, of a depressive episode. 
If you're experiencing anhedonia, there's something mood-related going on for you, because this one's pretty specific. The third is insomnia or hypersomnia. So this is the first of three we're going to talk about that are kind of polarized, meaning depression can push you to either end of the spectrum. In this case, the spectrum is sleep. Some people during a depressive episode have a very difficult time falling asleep and or staying asleep. So you might be getting two, three, four, five hours a night. Sleep quality is also probably reduced because you're very restless, you're waking up a lot, and when you do wake up, you're maybe not able to go back to sleep as quickly as you normally would. So for people on one end of this spectrum, sleep is really minimal and choppy and, and difficult to initiate. Hypersomnia means suddenly we're sleeping a lot more for a lot longer and a lot deeper than we normally do. So if you experience hypersomnia, you might be sleeping 10, 11, even 12 hours a night, like sleeping like a log, you know, hard to wake up, not waking up a lot during the night. I mean, just out for long periods of time. And still, even after a long night of deep sleep, really difficult to wake up, really difficult to get going, feeling slow, feeling sluggish, um, really hard time getting going in the morning. That would be the hypersomnia end of things. So depression can disrupt your sleep in either direction. And for some people, it bounces back and forth between those two extremes. So they'll get insomnia one night and hypersomnia the next. So I sleep two hours on Tuesday, 12 on Wednesday. It's tough, it's not fun. The next symptom is another polarized symptom of depression and it relates to appetite. Sometimes in a depressive episode, we basically lose interest in food. Uh, both of these, by the way, both of these, they're two sides of the same coin, and they actually come back to anhedonia, that loss of joy. We eat for two reasons. We eat to satisfy physical hunger, and we eat for enjoyment. We do. Food is pleasurable. We've gotten to the point where almost all of our food tastes really good most of the time. And so we do eat for enjoyment. And when that enjoyment is absent from our food, we either lose interest in the food and don't really care to eat because it no longer feels rewarding other than very, very basic, you know, preventing us from dying, or we eat a lot more than usual because we're anticipating this feeling during or after having eaten of like, man, that was good. I enjoyed that. That, that was fun. And that feeling's not there anymore. And our brains interpret that as like, we must not have eaten enough because normally after we eat, I get this feeling of like, uh, satisfaction, like emotion, not just physical, but emotional satisfaction. And if that feeling is absent, we often keep eating. And just like with sleep, sometimes people can kind of ping pong here too, where they'll have a day, two days, three days where they barely eat at all. And then a few days where they eat maybe twice as much as they normally would. Um, so there can be a lot of like movement between these extremes, typically with not much time in the middle. The third polarized symptom of depression is what's called the psychomotor symptoms. And so psychomotor symptoms are essentially like your physical and mental activity level. Sometimes when we're depressed, our, inter our, our energy, our motivation, our drive, our desire goes way down. Like we don't really care to do anything. We have very little energy. Uh, our brains are moving slower. Like it actually feels like your brain is like stuck in the mud, if that makes sense, or like you're moving through a mental fog, your body might feel heavier than normal. Like like somebody cranked up, like imagine if there was like a knob for Earth's gravity and someone put it to like 1.5 instead of one. And it's just even like getting up out of bed, walking across your room, 
feels like a workout. Like it feels like you are carrying this heavy backpack on you. Um, when you're on that end of things, that's what's called psychomotor retardation. So it's kind of like a flame retardant, right? If that makes sense. The other end of the spectrum is psychomotor agitation, which is an increase in physical and mental energy, but not in a pleasurable way, not in like a, I just had a strong cup of coffee and I'm ready to take on the world kind of way, but more like a, I need to do something, but I don't know what kind of way. There's often a lot of difficulty in finding an outlet for this energy that feels satisfactory. And so it, it just kind of stays built up inside. And we'll often have a lot of like restless, fidgety, uh, kind of purposeless motor behaviors like pacing or or a lot of like leg and arm movements or clenching there's like there's on some level a desire to be doing something but because the psychomotor agitation is often combined with the anhedonia it's like we want to do something but nothing feels worth doing and so we get this very wound up pent up often angry or even aggressive feeling as a result of our depression so those are the three polarized symptoms of depression. The sixth symptom is difficulty with focus, concentration, memory, and organization. Depression affects our cognitive functioning. Depression affects our neurotransmitters or our brain chemicals, the speed at which they communicate with one another, which is what dictates all of our mental activity, often slows down when we're depressed. And so our brains just aren't as efficient. They aren't working as well. It's a little bit like uh, on your device, your phone, your tablet, your computer. When you have like a really big program running in the background, like you're maybe it's downloading an update or you have like a podcast or, or a YouTube video stream running in the background while you're trying to do a bunch of stuff in the foreground and everything just kind of slows down, gets a little choppy, doesn't run as smoothly, doesn't run as efficiently. That's kind of what depression can be like cognitively. It's like having this big resource heavy program running in the background that just doesn't leave you with that much left over to live your life with. The seventh symptom is intense feelings of worthlessness or guilt or shame. When we're depressed, we tend to kind of feel like we're the worst person in the world and everything bad in our lives is because of us and we make everyone else's life around us worse just by like existing and being here. We often kind of feel like we are a black hole that we're sucking the rest of the world into. And as a result, we often isolate during periods of depression. We don't go to work, we don't go to school, we don't spend time with our friends and our family, almost like we're trying to protect them from ourselves. Um, or maybe we don't think we deserve to be around them. We don't want to ruin their day, ruin their week. We don't want to be a Debbie Downer. A lot of people with depression struggle with over-apologizing, and I think that that relates to this core inner sensation of excess guilt and shame. The eighth symptom, and this one might seem a little redundant because it's, it's definitely similar to some of the other symptoms, is excessive fatigue. And fatigue can be different than sleep though. Like hypersomnia and fatigue are not necessarily the same thing. You can be very fatigued and not necessarily be sleeping more. Uh, in fact, and this is super frustrating, you can be extremely fatigued and have insomnia, which really sucks, but it can happen. It's not fun. Fatigue just means like we have less energy than normal. So it's difficult for us to uh, feel physically or mentally able to fulfill all of our obligations and responsibilities in a day. You know, whatever we've kind of signed up for in life, again, you know, work, school, home, relationship, 
kids, all the stuff that normally we can get up and do and, and, and kind of meet, uh, meet expectations for, suddenly it's like we feel like we have about 25 to 50% of the resources, like the energy and the attention that we normally have. And you look at your entire day and it's like, mm, I don't think I'm going to be able to do all that today. And often what happens is we mentally sort of triage things and figure out, you know, what are the absolute most, what do I feel like I could do? What's, if I don't do these things, my life's going to really fall apart. So we prioritize the absolute top line stuff and then the rest we probably can't do for a while. The final symptom of depression is suicidal ideation. Suicidal ideation covers a much wider range of feelings and experiences than most people realize. It doesn't inherently just literally mean like I want to die and I'm going to try to do that. It certainly can, but there's a much wider range of, of thoughts and feelings that go along with this. So um, to simplify it a little bit, I'm going to break it down into two types of suicidal ideation, passive and active. Passive suicidal ideation is more just general thoughts about like death or non-existence and a lot of mixed feelings or ambivalence about the fact that I am alive and I exist. People who are experiencing passive suicidal ideation are not actually considering ending their own lives. Not in any like real way anyway. It might be a fleeting thought here and there. But there's not like a strong intentionality behind it. It's not something they're having to you know, actively hold themselves back from doing. It's more just like, you know, if I did not wake up tomorrow, I would kind of have mixed feelings about that rather than just being like, oh no, that's so sad. Or if I got hit by a car today, you know, like there's a part of me that would very much be okay with that. Um, or just general, like, I kind of wish I wasn't here anymore. I kind of wish I'd never been born. I don't understand why I exist. Would people, would people care? Would people notice? Would people even miss me if I was gone? So it's just kind of these more general philosophical type thoughts. Active suicidal ideation is sort of the next step beyond that. So when a person is experiencing active suicidal ideation, that means they are at least on some level, and this still has a very wide range, but they're at least on some level contemplating creating their own death. There's three um, components of active suicidal ideation that we assess in professional mental health. They are plan, means, and intent. So plan is like, do you have an idea of what you would do? If you just say like, in general, I just kind of want to die, but there's no specific way that I'm thinking or envisioning that happening in, then that would be a person who, who does not have a plan. If you do have a plan, the next question is means. In other words, do you have the ability to execute your plan? Do you, do you have the things you need? Do you have access to, to these items or these implements? So I'm going to try to make this non-triggering. So I'm going to name like a pretty ridiculous example here. So if my plan for suicide was to nuke myself, um, most likely I don't have the means to do that probably, right? I probably don't have access to a nuclear bomb. So I have a plan, but I don't have the means, which means that unless my plan changes, I'm still you know, probably gonna be safe in that scenario. The third item that we assess is intent, which means like, are you really feeling like a fairly strong urge to do this thing in the near future? Sometimes we have the plan and we have the means, but it's not like this is an imminent thing that I'm pondering. It's more like, I know that that's what I would do if it got to that point, but it's not really in the forefront yet. It's more like a contingency plan that I'm kind of keeping in my back pocket if things get worse or if things stay this bad for a really long period of time and I see no hope. 
So even if someone does have plan and means, that still doesn't necessarily mean like this person is in urgent danger and needs to be rushed to the hospital. If they have plan, means, and intent, that's a different story. And that is a situation where we need to get someone to a safe place pretty quickly. So those are the nine symptoms of depression. And again, just to wrap that up, a depressive episode is defined as having five or more of those for most days for a period of two weeks or more. One last thing I'm going to say about the symptoms is, as you notice, there's nine of them. You have to have five. So if you think about that for a second, you can have two people, both in a depressive episode, who look very different to one another, right? The core symptom is depressed mood. You have to have depressed mood to be considered to be experiencing depression. The others are all kind of like, I don't want to say customizable because it makes it sound like you're like, choose your own depressive episode. It's not like that. But let's say you have, let's say it's, okay, it's you and me. I have depressed mood, anhedonia, insomnia, excess appetite, and psychomotor retardation, okay? You have depressed mood, suicidal ideation, exhaustion, psychomotor agitation, and difficulty focusing and concentrating. You and me, we don't really look anything alike. Our, our struggles, our symptoms, our impairment, like totally different, right? We are those said to have the same diagnosis, which is a little, again, I'm gonna use this word a lot today because we got some work to do, but it's, it's frustrating. I know it's frustrating to, especially if you're in like a group therapy setting and, and you see other people who are said to have the same diagnosis as you and have the same treatment plan as you. And it's like, that doesn't look anything like me. What they are experiencing doesn't necessarily seem easier or harder. It just looks very different from what I'm experiencing. Currently, under the diagnostic classification system that we use, that's how it's done. Next, I want to talk about some conditions that can cause people to experience depressive episodes. So the symptoms we just reviewed, those are the symptoms of a depressive episode. A depressive episode is not a diagnosis. It's a, it's a problem, basically. But you can't be diagnosed with depressive episode. What you'd be diagnosed with is some kind of disorder that creates depressive episodes. The most common, by far, is what's called major depressive disorder. Most people, if you're talking to someone who says like, I have depression or I'm treated for depression, probably 90 plus percent of the time, they are referring to major depressive disorder. Depression, just that word by itself, is not actually a diagnosis. That's a layman's term or like a shorthand term that a lot of people use to describe depression. But there is no medical code for depression. It's, it's just a casual term. Major depressive disorder is a mental health condition when a person experiences depressive episodes but also experiences non-depressed or less depressed periods. In other words, if you think of like normal mood versus depressed mood, which is like a very low mood state, right? Someone with major depressive disorder is someone who kind of goes like this. And the length and severity and um, frequency of the depressive episodes can vary tremendously from one person to the next. We're gonna talk about that a little bit more uh, pretty shortly here. Some people with major depressive disorder might feel depressed 10% of the time. Like it's a pretty rare, it happens every now and then, but most of the time they're all right. Some people might experience depression 90% of the time. And the periods of time when they feel kind of okay and are more functional, those are, those are rare. Those are like when the rays of sunshine breaks through on a cloudy day, it's like, it's an infrequent experience. But major depressive disorders means a person experiences depressive episodes and periods of normal mood to some frequency. 
There's also bipolar disorder, which can look very similar to major depressive disorder, but it adds a third mood state, which is mania or manic episodes, and those are periods of elevated mood. So these people have three mood states that they can fluctuate between, depression, normal mood, and mania. Mania, this is a little bit of an oversimplification, but it's not the purpose of today's episode. We'll break it down more later. Mania is a little bit like just the opposite of depression. It's when you have so much energy, so much motivation, or feel so good that it actually becomes problematic or dangerous. When someone has severe depressive episodes, it can be a little difficult to tell that apart from someone who has bipolar disorder. Because if your depressive episodes are like all nine symptoms for a long time, really, really bad, and then you have periods of time where you have a normal mood, where you feel like okay or average, that gap is so wide that it can almost look like someone is swinging up into a manic episode because just feeling normal is so good compared to how they feel when they're depressed that it can look or feel almost euphoric in comparison. It's kind of like when you've been really sick for a long period of time and you finally have that day where you wake up and you're like, oh my gosh, I feel like I can breathe, I'm not vomiting, uh, my body's not in pain. And like for at least that day or a couple days, just feeling not sick feels like incredible, even though it's actually normal and how you'd feel all the time before you got sick. That's what having a normal mood can feel like to a person with major depressive disorder or bipolar disorder. There is also something called persistent depressive disorder. This used to be called dysthymic disorder. We like to change the names because no one knew what the heck dysthymic disorder meant and persistent depressive disorder does explain this condition a little bit better. Persistent depressive disorder is a mild to moderate depression, but it's not episodic. Like, and if that sounds terrible, it is. Basically, persistent depressive disorder is a mild to moderate depressive episode that doesn't go away. It's, it's more like, at least without treatment anyway, it's just kind of this person's permanent state of being. They're always at least a little bit depressed, no matter what's going on. A lot of people, some people like to have pop culture references for like, what would this look like? Um, and I'm not actually super familiar with this show, but a lot of people say that persistent depressive disorder is kind of like Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh. So if that gives you a decent benchmark for what this might look like, feel free to use that. There are also, so those, those three are all considered to be mood disorders. There's a couple other things that can produce symptoms of depression. One is what's called schizoaffective disorder. Schizoaffective disorder is essentially like a hybrid of schizophrenia and depression. So it's a mix of the depressive episode symptoms we talked about earlier and some psychotic symptoms, visual or auditory hallucinations, delusions, paranoia, etc. For someone who's experiencing a situational depression, like we talked about in the beginning of this episode, that would typically be classified as adjustment disorder with depressed mood. Adjustment disorders are not chronic mental health diagnoses. They are acute or like situational diagnoses, but they're a way of capturing what is this person experiencing and potentially still getting this person treatment. So like, let's say that I've never had any major depression before. Like I've, I've never really experienced a clinical depression and I'm 24 years old and one of my parents dies unexpectedly. I am obviously going to feel very depressed probably for quite some time, maybe to the extent where I need therapy or medication or both, but I, it would be inappropriate to diagnose me with major depressive disorder in that scenario 
because there was no history of depression prior to this terrible event happening in my life. And obviously the way I feel right now is related to that event. And we can reasonably assume that when I kind of work my way through that, you know, it probably always will make me sad to some degree, but there will probably be a point in my future where I recover for the most part from that. With major depressive disorder, that's not the case, right? There's always, or can always be, just this divide between how good my life is and how good I feel about my life. So we'd use adjustment disorders to capture or diagnose or treat a person who's experiencing a situational or like a, an externally caused depression. There are also medical conditions that can cause depression. So speaking of treatments, let's talk about the various ways that you can treat your depression. Broadly speaking, your options are gonna be therapy or medication, but each of those break down into quite a few subcategories. If you're talking about therapy, we can start by breaking it down into individual therapy or group therapy. There are a few empirically supported treatments, meaning treatments that we've done research on and have pretty consistently found that these things help people, um, empirically supported treatments for depression. One is cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT. This is by far the most common treatment for depression. It's actually the most common treatment for a lot of things. Very well researched, um, very popular treatment approach. Cognitive behavioral therapy entails looking at, understanding, and potentially trying to change a person's thought process, cognitive, and lifestyle or habits, behavioral. Both thoughts and behaviors can create or worsen depressive episodes. When we're dealing with depression, it tends to change the way we think. You know, like we talked about before, you tend to see yourself as kind of this like black hole of a person. And it's almost like the, it's almost like reverse narcissism. You know, if a narcissist sees themselves as the cause of everything good in the world, a depressed person often sees themselves as the cause of everything bad in the world. And they think that they're constantly bringing other people down or that they've created their own depression or everybody hates them, they're a loser, they're not gonna get anywhere, etc. The cognitive part of cognitive behavioral therapy involves taking a closer look at the thoughts or beliefs that sustain those feelings and looking for the flaws or the problems or the logical inconsistencies, which there always are, with those thoughts and then finding ways to challenge them. So essentially you almost become like a lawyer for yourself and you prosecute your depression. In fact, there's literally, there's a tool I use that's literally called the judge and we actually put thoughts on trial and we just like critique the hell out of them and it, it's super fun. The behavioral part of cognitive behavioral therapy addresses those like lifestyle or physical symptoms of depression. So we go over sleep hygiene, we give psychoeducation on nutrition, and we teach you how to eat for your mental health. We look at sustainable physical activity routines that are appropriate for the symptoms you're experiencing. And obviously if a person is experiencing fatigue, disrupted sleep, disrupted appetite, they're not gonna be able to go do some you know, super intense, uh, crazy workout, but um, being completely sedentary tends to make depression worse. So we look at how you're living, we look at how you're spending, allocating your time and your energy during your day, and we try to redistribute some of those resources in a way that's more likely to get you out of this depressive episode. So super, super simple overview, but that's CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy. Some therapists um, just do one or the other. 
In other words, there are some, there are cognitive therapists and there are behavioral therapists. So if one of those branches sounds way more important or way more appealing to you than the other, you might seek out one of those more specified uh, treatment approaches. There's also mindfulness-based approaches. These are gonna focus more on just the thought part of depression and specifically mindfulness-based approaches tend to emphasize like what is your attention getting directed to in a day? What are you focusing on? Many people with depression struggle with feelings of like pessimism or even nihilism and they tend to focus excessively on the worst parts of their lives or just the worst things happening in the world in general and that essentially validates their depression. You know, they see all these bad things happening or hear about all these bad things going on and that increases their feelings of depression. Meanwhile, you know, there are good things in this person's life. There are good things happening in the world, but they just have a hard time seeing them or, or really paying attention to them or kind of making them count mentally. So mindfulness-based treatment approaches emphasize your ability to a degree, because you do have this ability to a, to a degree, your ability to choose what to pay attention to and make intentional, selected, conscious choices about where you're directing your attention and making sure you aren't only seeing the parts of your life or you aren't only seeing the parts of your world that essentially like validate or reinforce your depression. The third empirically supported treatment for depression is what's called interpersonal psychotherapy. Depression often affects our relationships. It can tear our relationships apart. It can make us avoid or isolate from people who are safe and supportive. It just really impairs our relational functioning. And so interpersonal psychotherapy involves looking at your relational skills or relational tools, things like assertiveness, boundaries, saying no, saying yes. Sometimes we need, some of us need to say yes more often. Um, just being willing to maybe do some exposure therapy and gradually like get back out into the world after a period of really intense isolation, for example. So there's also psychodynamic therapy. This could also be called psychoanalytic or Freudian psychotherapy. The, this is kind of an older uh, sort of classic type of therapy. If you've ever seen a therapy session shown in like a movie or a TV show, this is often what's shown and it's often like the, the client or the patient is like maybe laying on a couch or facing away from the therapist. The therapist kind of has a notepad and mostly is just kind of asking prompting questions or, or making some theories to kind of get the person to keep talking. I don't know a ton about this. I'm not trained in it. So my, my perspective might be a little ignorant here, but just kind of core base elements of psychodynamic therapy usually involves like exploring the unconscious, whether that's things that you don't even realize you're thinking or feeling, or your dreams, for example, are part of your subconscious, um, as well as like early childhood experiences and how things that happened while you were growing up might affect uh, patterns or roles that you find yourself in, you know, presently as an adult. There's also relational or client-centered therapy, which is more about just giving the therapy client a safe space to process and using a lot of tools like uh, empathy, perspective taking, active listening, reflection, um, not necessarily a lot of guided or directed interventions from the therapist. This is more of a client-guided treatment approach. So all of those tools can be applied in either individual or group settings. 
If you're looking at group psychotherapy, there's a pretty wide range of levels of care, and I'm gonna break those down for you. The lowest level of care for a group uh, would be like a support group. And that's usually a group that meets once or maybe twice a week for probably about an hour. They tend to be less frequent, uh, not as long. Some support groups are professional-led, meaning there's a therapist or a psychologist like me facilitating the group. Sometimes these are peer-led. So like, it's not a treatment for depression, but like AA, for example, Alcoholics Anonymous, that's a peer-led support group. It's, it's people who struggle with the thing, helping other people who struggle with the thing. Those are the lowest levels of care for group therapy. Next step up is intensive outpatient therapy. These are the programs that I run. They're kind of like a mid-range treatment option. They are usually in the neighborhood of like six to 10 hours a week, three or four days a week, somewhere in there. Um, typically a mix of education, so a lot of the tools and skills uh, that we talked about, plus processing, which is when people get a chance to really dive deep into like, here's what I'm struggling with, here's what's going on for me, and get support from peers and professionals at the same time. So you got people like me in there saying like, Here's what's probably happening in your head when you feel that way. Here's something you might be able to do differently about it. Then you got other people sitting in the room with you who like are actively feeling that same thing at that same time. And they can tell you like, I get it. I'm right there with you. I know how that is. Um, so it can be really powerful to get peer support and professional support at the same time. Intensive outpatient programs are usually for people who are experiencing like some level of functional impairment. Maybe they're not going to work every day, not taking care of themselves every day, not, not going to school every day but they're still semi-functional. They can do those things sometimes or for shortened periods of time. Um, not all the time, but not never. Next step up is a partial hospitalization program or a PHP. These are more like, a, it's basically doing therapy like it's your job. These are gonna be in the neighborhood of 20 to 40 hours a week. And it's usually like a Monday through Friday, nine to five-ish type schedule. Uh, so you still live at home or wherever your residence is when you're doing a PHP, but most of your day you're going to therapy. And that's what you're spending like the majority of your life on while you're in these programs is on working on yourself, on getting better. So these programs are really designed for people who are struggling to maintain, you know, even a pretty basic level of functioning other than safety. Like they're able to stay safe, but beyond that, they're having a really hard time doing much in their day. Next step up would be residential treatment. This is usually about the same amount of actual therapy as a PHP, but the difference is with residential treatment, as the name implies, you're living in the treatment center for some period of time. Advantages to that are uh, if there's any safety issues, you know, it's a more controlled environment. There is almost always 24 seven support. So, you know, if you wake up at two in the morning and you've just had uh, like a trauma nightmare that's triggered a depressive episode, there's going to be people there. There's, there's staff there who can talk it out with you, help you figure out what to do to get back to sleep. So you're never disconnected from your support network in a residential treatment center. The highest level of care would be like inpatient mental health. So that's when you go to the hospital for your mental health, for your depression. That's almost always when there's a safety concern present, whether that's suicidal ideation, homicidal ideation, or like inability to uh, provide yourself with basic amount of care, like I can't feed myself. Inpatient treatment is not really long-term treatment. Because it's very intensive, it's usually very short. Typically hospital stays are in the range of like three to five days per treatment episode. Sometimes they can be longer, but 
inpatient treatment is crisis intervention services. And so their main focus is on just like making sure that you don't hurt yourself or someone else most of the time. You aren't necessarily going to get better in a long-term kind of way from being in a hospital for your mental health. So we do sometimes need that and that there's that's perfectly fine. But don't go inpatient and think that that, because it's the highest level of care, that that means that's going to like treat or solve your problems. It's often just one step of many that a person needs. And most people who receive inpatient treatment are going to eventually need some level of follow-up care, whether that's individual therapy, medication management, an IOP, a PHP, a residential program, something a little bit more long-term and a little bit more skills or treatment oriented, Otherwise, what ends up happening a lot is people kind of ping pong between like, I'm in the hospital, I'm out of the hospital, I don't have much treatment. And then things get worse because I don't have much treatment, so now I'm back in the hospital. And because I don't really get any long-term solutions in the hospital, now I'm back out again and struggling. And you jump back and forth between the highest and the lowest level, never really getting what you need, which lives somewhere in the middle of those two extremes. So obviously another branch of treatment for depression is psychotropic or psychiatric medications. There are technically five classes of psychiatric medications for depression. Only three of them are really used commonly anymore. The first class is SSRIs. That stands for Selective Serotonin Reuptake Inhibitor. And those are gonna be your medications like Celexa, Lexapro, Prozac, Zoloft. These are medications that, uh, as the name implies, inhibit the reuptake of serotonin. Serotonin is a neurotransmitter or brain chemical that promotes feelings of calmness and relaxation and peace and being at ease. These, uh, these neurotransmitters and therefore these feelings are often short-lived or absent in people with depression. And so a SS, an SSRI keeps the serotonin in the receptor sites of your neurons or brain cells for longer than it otherwise would. And it prolongs those pleasant emotional experiences, which helps a person reduce feelings of depression. SNRIs, or selective norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors, are also fairly common treatment approaches for depression. And SNRIs are going to be like your Cymbalta, your Effexor, etc. They work the same way as an SSRI, except that they act on the neurotransmitter norepinephrine rather than the neurotransmitter serotonin. Norepinephrine is more involved in physical regulation. Um, so it involves like energy in the nervous system. It involves regulation of appetite. It involves your circadian rhythm or your sleep cycle. And as we discussed earlier, all of those things are often very disrupted in a person who's experiencing a depressive episode. And so an SNRI is gonna help regain some of your kind of physiological or behavioral uh, routine or consistency to hopefully help you get back on track with your life. The third relatively common category of medications would be atypical antidepressants. And these, everything in this category, they don't necessarily share a mechanism of action. Most of these are pretty unique medications that just don't otherwise fit anywhere. So that's gonna be things like Welbutrin, Remeron, Trazodone. Um, they're all just different. They don't work. They're not SSRIs. They're not SNRIs. They're just their own thing. There's two other categories. Very rarely used these days. They tend to be very strong. Also tend to like often produce a lot of side effects. And they are MAOIs or monoamine oxidase inhibitors and tricyclic antidepressants. 
very low chance you're ever going to be on any of those. Um, maybe if you've tried like every other medication, somebody might try one of those. I, I can't remember the last time I worked with someone who was taking one of those medications. So probably not anything you're ever going to see. Speaking of people who don't get better from traditional treatment approaches, there are currently two other empirically supported treatment approaches for depression other than therapy and medication. And they are ECT or electroconvulsive therapy and TMS or transcranial magnetic stimulation. Both of these work in kind of a similar way, which is that they affect the physical functioning of your neurotransmitters. So they actually produce changes in your brain pretty similar to what psychiatric medications do. They just use a different mechanism of action. Rather than affecting what's in your bloodstream, they kind of, since they work directly on your brain, this is going to sound a little intense, but they are, they kind of brute force your brain into working differently. Um, so ECT uses electrical currents to change the functioning of your brain. TMS uses magnetic... Um, I don't totally know how it works, to be honest with you. It uses magnets. That's all I really that's all I really understand about TMS. It somehow uses like magnetic polarity to alter your brain functioning. Not in like a, I know that sounds super scary. Maybe it is a little scary. I, again, these aren't, I don't do these things, so I don't know a ton about them. Um, they, they can produce some side effects that are usually temporary. They don't like rearrange your brain or fry your brain. Uh, there's a lot of misconceptions out there about them based on probably stuff that was done 70 years ago or, or fictional material that people have seen. They are generally pretty safe and well supported, um, but they would typically only be used in the case of a person who's already tried more traditional treatments and just isn't getting much benefit. I know there are kind of some early yet promising studies that are showing uh, positive treatment effects for various, like, I'm just gonna say drugs. Um, I would consider, and, and the American Psychological Association would agree with me on this, I would consider those things to be in the very early phases of testing, and, and there may be some promising results there, but I don't really think we're at the place yet where they're um, strong treatment options. There is actually a third. There is actually a third treatment for depression, and it's physical activity, and, and that's not a joke. Lots of studies have shown that regular physical activity produces changes in the brain and in brain functioning that are comparable to top-of-the-line antidepressant medications and like the best therapists in the world. Like regular physical activity essentially does the same things for your brain as those two things could. Now, obviously, when someone is experiencing depression, regular physical activity is a big hill to climb, right? Like literally and metaphorically. Even someone who is not depressed, uh, it's difficult to get people to, to have regular physical activity. Establishing and sticking with a workout routine is a tough thing for anyone to do. It's even harder if you're struggling with sleep, not enjoying anything, your appetite's screwed up, you're exhausted, you can't concentrate. It's, you know, the deck is stacked against you in that situation. So I understand that this is kind of a frustrating thing to hear because the thing that could help you most might also be something that literally feels impossible to do right now, but I would be doing you a disservice if I didn't at least mention this. Also, it's the topic of my doctoral dissertation, so like, of course I have to talk about it a little bit, but it's legitimately a third treatment option for depression. And if there's anything you can do to help yourself be more physically active, even if, it, even if it's like hiring a trainer or something like that, um, 
it, it can legitimately be a part of your treatment and a really, really important part of your treatment. So consider factoring it in if you feel like you can. There's also supplements that can help with depression. Again, not a huge, uh, don't, re don't really know a lot about those, um, so I'm not really gonna get into them too much. So there's a few last thoughts that I wanna share with you here. If a lot of the information I've shared so far lands for you, or maybe you already know that you have depression and you were just listening to this podcast to see if there's anything you don't know, I know that when you hear all of this stuff, it can sound pretty bleak. It can sound kind of hopeless. And if you read like treatment literature for depression, that isn't necessarily going to make you feel better because you'll find a lot of information that says like some people get all the way better. Some people don't seem to get better at all. Most people get somewhat better. And that might not sound great because of course, everybody wants to be symptom free. Everybody wants to get to a point where depression is non-existent. Many of us don't get there. That isn't as bad as it sounds because the difference between well-managed depression and unmanaged depression is like a Grand Canyon. I mean, just think about the three variables that make up a depressive episode would be like frequency, how often do I get depressed? Duration, how long do I stay depressed for? And intensity, how bad does it get? So imagine going from being severely depressed 90% of the time for months at a time to experiencing one or two mild depressive episodes per year that last a couple weeks. That would be considered someone who didn't get all the way better. That's a person who is not cured, so to speak. But can you imagine the difference in the quality of life between those two people. It is immense. And so even if you're not able to get all the way better, so to speak, it is worth treating your depression. It is 100% worth doing within reason, everything you can to try to get better. Because those two lifestyles I just described, night and day difference. If you are feeling hopeless or pessimistic about your ability to get better. What I want to remind you of is that that is a symptom of depression. That feeling is being driven by the physiological or neurochemical dysfunction. I don't mean that to be mean. It's just, it's, it's, a, it's an accurate term. Your brain is not functioning properly and it is making you think things and making you feel things that are not realistic, that are not plausible. It is causing you to put blinders on and only see or hear the worst parts of your life and then extrapolate them eternally into the future. That is not what your life will be if you get helpful and appropriate treatment. That being said, there's a Dave Ramsey quote. I don't know if you like Dave Ramsey or even know who Dave Ramsey is. Some people don't like him. Um, Dave Ramsey says this when he's talking about money. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quote him, but I'm talking about your life, okay? Dave Ramsey says, if you want to live like nobody else, then you have to live like nobody else. What he means when he says that is, if you don't want to constantly be living paycheck to paycheck, which is what a lot of people do, you can't necessarily just go out and buy fun stuff a lot, which is also what a lot of people do. You have to live like nobody else, 
to live like nobody else. If you want to get to a point where depression is not something that is controlling or dictating your life, you're going to have to do things that most people aren't willing to do. Because if you have chronic depression, any type of mood disorder, what that means is your brain works differently. Specifically, your brain is probably much more sensitive to fluctuations in inputs or in internal rhythms. So someone who doesn't have a depressive disorder can have a really rough night of sleep, right? And the worst thing that happens to them the next day is they're a little tired. They're not on their A-game. They're not 100%. They get a good night's sleep the next night, and they're fine. For somebody who has a depressive disorder, one rough night of sleep might trigger a depressive episode that lasts weeks or months. Or same with food, you know? If someone who doesn't, someone who doesn't have a depressive disorder got a busy day, they work through lunch. Their blood sugar, their brain functioning dips for a little bit, then they have dinner and they're okay. If you have depression, skipping a meal can trigger a depressive episode. Isolating from friends and family can trigger a depressive episode. Being sedentary can trigger a depressive episode. A very mild amount drugs or alcohol, sometimes even like caffeine or caffeine withdrawal can trigger a depressive episode. So you have to be really careful with yourself. You have to treat yourself kind of like you're made of glass because, and I don't mean this in a disparaging way, but mentally in some ways you kind of are. Your brain is more susceptible to changes and fluctuations and distress and dysfunction than the so-called average persons. And you have to factor that in to your life choices. And you probably have to live in a way that's gonna look a little bit different, a little bit weird, a little bit intense to most people. But if that gets you from being depressed most of the time to being depressed like rarely, where it's, where it's a weird experience for you, where it's like, man, it's been so long, I barely even remember what this feels like. What would you not do? Like, what would you not do to make that shift. That'd be worth just about anything, wouldn't it?